Our scripture today is found in Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And the word of the Lord says to us today, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God, thank you for the joy that is ours to stand in your honor today and to read from your holy word. I pray that you would use this time to open our hearts and minds to understand, to grasp uh, the truths that are very significant here as we seek to fulfill your purpose and plan for our lives. And God, I pray that we would not only be given insight into the scriptures, but it would be applied to the lives that you have called us to live as you, through this word today, transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you take a look at the uh, screen above you, one of the, one of the interesting things about life is that life often brings burdens, doesn't it? And I wonder, what is your greatest burden today? What is your greatest burden some of us, with the upcoming election, might say that it's the election, it's our country, and certainly that ought to be one of our burdens, because in my personal opinion, we're in trouble. I don't like either candidate. Well, candidates, there are four, <laughs> uh, but I must pick one of the lesser of the two evils, in my opinion, but... Uh, Nonetheless, it is, it is where we are as a country, it's where we are as a nation, and as a result of that, we are forced then to select. And I think uh, as you pray and as you seek God's direction when you go into that booth, I pray that you would just select the right one that the Spirit of God convicts you that needs to be our president. One of the great things I have learned that in spite of who's president, it is God who is on the throne, and it is He who is in control, and only God, only God fulfills every one of His promises. I don't know of a single politician that has fulfilled all of their promises. Do you? No. And we're going to talk about them here in just a little bit because the Apostle Paul says, I am not lying. And God does not lie. And when he promises something, he fulfills his promise. And the word of God never comes back unfulfilled in those promises. So God is the only promise keeper, and he fulfills all of his promises. So it's to him that we should look to as our leader and as our guide over our nation and God says that he is over the governments and he's over the nation and so it's great to know that God in spite of who wins it is God who is in control and I am so grateful for that comforting thought to know that no matter who gets elected God's already preordained that he already knows who's going to get there it's not going to be a surprise to him it may be a surprise to us in here but not to him and as a result of that, I am glad that he is doing that. So we could say, hey, our nation is, is what's burdening us. Maybe it's a financial matter in your life that's burdening you. There's a financial thing that is just pressing down upon you and causing you to have sleepless nights and to be awake. Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it's a physical thing that you're being confronted with. There's some challenge physically, and because of this physical challenge, you're, you know that there are things that are coming, and so you're burdened by that. Or maybe, uh, like me, it's a family member, as I have mentioned to you not long ago, that, that 
that we are burdened for one of our family members, our daughter, and so that is a burden that we carry. And I even confessed to you a couple of Sundays ago that God convicted me in my burden for my daughter that, that he asked me sort of um, unapologetically and a little bit more convictingly and more than I like, really, because I don't like to be taken by, to the woodshed by God, do you? I don't. And he said, are you as burdened about the lostness in your city as you are about your own family member?" And I had to honestly say, no, I'm not. And so God and I had a little wrestling match there, and you know who won that, right? God did. So maybe you're burdened about a family member. And we're going to look at the scripture today as to what is the Apostle Paul's greatest burden. What is his greatest burden? And I think we will find and we discover in this text that there is a burden that all of us should share with the Apostle Paul, and it is this burden that should be, in fact, our greatest burden, the burden in which the Apostle Paul has. So as we take a look at this burden, I want to ask you then this question, do you really genuinely authentic believe that people without Christ, people who do not know Jesus at all as their personal Savior and Lord, They are already under the curse of that sin. They are condemned by the law. And because of that, they will spend an eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? You see, I think some of us would say that we do. But I think more than likely what we would claim to believe is a belief that that's what the Bible says but it's not become something so personal to us that we have become burdened by the lostness of humanity around us. To be burdened. The spiritual condition and the spiritual plight of those who do not know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Knowing that because of that, they are destined already to spend an eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Because hell is a real place where real people go without Christ. And we should be burdened about that. Some of us, I think, would say, you know, I'm burdened about that. But can you imagine someone actually being glad about that? Is it possible for us to somewhat say, well, I'm burdened about it, but I'm kind of glad, you know? And it's interesting that uh, I found this little interesting tidbit from Ray Stedman in his second volume of his exegesis of the book of Romans, he tells of a congregation that dismissed their pastor. That's right, they dismissed their pastor. And someone asked a parishioner why they had dismissed their pastor. And the parishioner said, well, the pastor kept telling us we were going to hell. What does your new pastor say, came the inquiry. Well, he keeps saying the same thing. He keeps saying that we're going to hell. So what's the difference, he then asked her. Well, the churchgoer replied, when our first pastor said we were going to hell, he sounded like he was glad about it. But when our new pastor said it, he sounded like he was saying it with a broken heart. Does the lostness of humanity really break our hearts? Really? Does that burden consume us? Does the lostness around us with the people that we come in contact every single day, the post office, the grocery store, in line, the office, at the plant, at our school, at the playground, 
in the football field? Are we really burdened about the lostness around us? Let's take a look at the Apostle Paul and see how he is burdened. There are five insights that I want us to look at about the burden of the Apostle Paul. Number one, let's look at his confession. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul confesses this burden. He said, I'm not speaking the truth in Christ. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Notice, I am speaking the truth. Is he speaking here or is he writing? Well, we all know the answer to that. He is actually writing. He's not speaking, but he is speaking through his writing. And so he basically is stating then for those of us who are reading this epistle that he is, in fact, speaking something that is truthful. He is not lying. That word lying is a word that, that sort of indicates that someone might say something for the purpose of, of, um, of trickery, of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Something that is de- deceptive. That's the word. Someone says something in order to deceive someone else. And I know no one in here has ever done that, right? No one has ever said something to someone It wasn't quite true, but you said it anyway because there was an intention, there was a motive behind it to deceive someone for what you said. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, no, I am not saying this to be deceptive. I'm not saying this to try to trick you, to try to persuade you. He's trying to convince these people of their need for Christ. And he's very careful in saying to them, I am not seeking to say this because I am deceiving you. In other words, I'm not going to tell you I care when I really don't. Anybody ever said that to you? You see, there's, there's a deception there. And so he says, I am speaking the truth. And then if you take a look at the text, he calls on two witnesses to the fact that he's speaking the truth. And the first witness we find is Christ. Christ is the first one that he calls to the witness stand. And he says, I am speaking the truth. And to validate the fact that I'm speaking the truth, I call to the witness stand Jesus. And Jesus steps up to the witness stand. Now, why Jesus? Because Jesus is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows what you're thinking right now. Isn't that scary? He knows what is in your heart. And in spite of all the facade and the camouflage and the games we play, God sees through all of that and sees the mind and the heart, the intent, the motive. He knows where we've been and he knows where we are. And it is Jesus himself who sees and knows the truth about whether or not we are lying and presenting something that is deceptive and something that is false. So he calls Jesus to the witness stand and Jesus said, the apostle Paul is saying the truth. But he also then calls the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. And he mentions the word conscience, doesn't he? What is the conscience? Well, I like to think of the conscience of that little little Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio that whispers into our ears and tells us what is right from what is wrong. You ever heard anybody say, let your conscience be your guide? That is a sure road to hell. Because your conscience will lie to you unless there is someone outside of itself that will speak truth into your conscience and help you understand and disseminate and discern that which is true from that which is false. And as Christ's followers, we have the Holy Spirit who speaks into our conscience and helps us realize and understand 
what is true and what is untrue. And he calls the Holy Spirit to the stand. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is holy, meaning that the Holy Spirit is righteous, meaning that the Holy Spirit cannot lie and will not allow the Apostle Paul to lie because he is the spirit of righteousness and he leads and he guides and he speaks into our, in our, into our minds, into our hearts, directing us and leading us into righteousness, into holiness, into that which reflects the likeness and the character of Jesus. And because of that, the Holy Spirit speaks into Paul's conscience and the Holy Spirit is in the stand and he says, the Apostle Paul's conscience is clean, it is clear, what he's saying is true. So here is the question of application. Why did the Apostle Paul need to defend himself in speaking the truth? If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he is anything but truthful about his spiritual condition, about his struggles in his, in his pilgrimage and trying to, to live out the Christian life. And he's, he's, but now you find him here in this particular passage saying, I am speaking to you the truth. I am not lying. And he calls Jesus to the witness stand, the Holy Spirit to the witness stand, and they confirm, yes, the Apostle Paul is speaking the truth because too often people say to us, are you ready for this? I'm praying for you. But they're lying. I can't tell you how many people that have said to me in the last couple of weeks, praying for you, Pastor. Really? Really? I wonder if that's just something we say. For how often do we have good intentions and we speak something quickly without counting the cost and not recognizing that when we say something to someone, they may understand that we are going to actually do what we are saying we are going to do or that we feel the way that we say we feel. For too often in the flesh, in our carnality, in our sinfulness, we have a tendency to want to present ourselves as good, as, as caring, as loving, as concerned. And we will quickly say something to our spouse, to our children, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even to the pastors of the church. And we, we say something quickly without really meaning the intent behind that because we want to project something Oh, they're a caring person, or oh, they're a, they're a genuine Christ follower. Oh, they have spiritual depth, and oh, they really walk with Jesus, and oh, aren't they in the Word? And if we really called Jesus, who knows everything, to the witness stand, and the Holy Spirit to the witness stand, would they say, yes, they are speaking the truth? Especially in the context of what we are studying here when we say we care about lost people. Do we really? Or is that just something we say? Or we put on a t-shirt? Or we put it in a purpose statement or a mission statement? And maybe even sing about it. But do we really? Shouldn't Jesus come to the witness stand and the Holy Spirit come into our hearts and search our conscience and search our claim and search our belief and come to then the conclusion, no, you really don't. Or maybe you don't as you should. And there's a lot of room for improvement. 
The Apostle Paul makes a confession. Secondly, he makes then a, a consequence as a result of this confession. There is something as a result of his confession. He says, I am not lying. I'm telling the truth. Jesus comes to the witness stand and said, yes, he is. The Holy Spirit comes to the witness and said, yes, he is telling the truth. And because he is telling the truth, there is something that is a consequence for what he says. There is a consequence for the way he is feeling. There is a consequence as a result of that reality. And that consequence is recorded for us in verse 2. He said that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's the consequence of his burden. He says that I, because I'm telling the truth, there is a residual, there is a, 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 an equal mark, there's something that happens because I have just spoken the truth, and because I'm speaking the truth, here's the reality, I, don't, don't misplace that word too quickly because the Apostle Paul is giving his readers and he's giving us some insight into something that's very personal to him. I mean, you, you studied, I think it was last Sunday or Sunday before last, where you ripped open your, you know, you boom, you let people see the real heart that's there in Isaiah. Some of you remember studying that. That's what he's doing here. He's, whoa, and he's, see, I, I want you to look deep in my heart and see me, no facade, no mask, no pretense, no camouflage, no game, no just standing up here as a preacher. But I want to, boom, I want you to see what's really in here in me. This is personal to the Apostle Paul. This is, let me say it again, it's personal to him. And many times in life group, you know, we, we have a tendency to be real shallow and, and, and not very deep and not very personal. Why? Because it's dangerous being personal, isn't it? Because they might know something about you that you don't want them to know. Or they might gossip about it at the lunch table here in a minute. Did you see what they said in life group? How can you believe that? You know? We don't reveal too much of our personal selves this way. But the Apostle Paul is being very transparent. Giving you insight into his soul. And he says... That I, the Apostle Paul, have. That word have is an interesting word. It means that he is possessed by it. He cannot shake it off. It is something that is gripping his heart, his mind, and his soul. It is something that haunts him. It is a burden that he cannot just shake off and pretend that it doesn't exist. He has it. It is a permanent fixture in his spirit. He has a great sorrow. Don't Overlook that word great. It means immense. It means huge. It means to a scale beyond compare. And the word sorrow means an overbearing grief. His heart is broken. I have a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish. That word unceasing means exactly what it says. It means never stops. It never has a break. It never goes on vacation. It is constantly haunting and hounding him 24-7, seven days a week. I don't know how many weeks there are a year, but it, it's, it's endless. Never goes away. He has an unceasing Anguish. That word anguish is a physical pain. His heart aches. It is something that is within him that makes his body feel what he is burdened about. It's causing physical 
this comfort for him. And notice he shows us exactly where it is. He says, it is in my heart. It is the very center. It is the very, the very core of my being. My mind, my conscience, my will, my soul is burdened with the consequence of the lostness of those people around me. And I wonder when we say we really care, do we really care to this magnitude? Oh, I'm burdened. But in compared to the Apostle Paul's burden, I would say that 99.9% .9 of us would have to admit, myself included, I'm not this burdened. Not only the consequence of his burden, I notice the commitment of his burden. And because he is this burden, there's a commitment that he then exhibits because of this burden in his soul. Notice he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Because of this burden, for, because, as a result of, I, the Apostle Paul, could wish that I myself would have cursed and cut off from this from this Jesus, from this Christ. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you read anything about his writings at all, you know that the Apostle Paul is in love with Jesus. I mean, his greatest desire and his greatest passion, his greatest quest is Jesus. And he has come to know Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life has been forever changed. And he, he treasures this intimate relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus. His salvation is precious to him. Because, you see, he spent his whole life trying to earn it, trying to work for it, only to be frustrated and discouraged. And when he met Jesus, he realized, oh, salvation is found through Jesus as my ultimate sacrifice. It's not my righteousness, but his righteousness. And he trusted in Jesus, and he found this freedom and this joy and this peace and this assurance that he had never known his whole life. And this salvation was precious to him. And then you take a look at the verses preceding this chapter, at the end of chapter 8. You see these eloquent, these beautiful passages where God, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, leads the Apostle Paul to write that no one can lose your salvation. The Apostle Paul has just gotten through saying, no matter who you are or what, you can't earn it, but you can't lose it because it's a gift. And once it's given, it's signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. And it's something that is permanent. It's not something that you can lose. And there's a message that we could preach all day long in the church because there are many who call themselves Christian faiths who believe and who claim that you can lose your salvation once you possess it. And that's not what Scripture teaches. The Apostle Paul said, I can't lose it, and I treasure it. But then he says in the next verse, Right after he just said that at the end of chapter 8. If I could, I wish that I could be a curse and I could be cut off. Now, I don't know about you, but a wish is a wish. That's the word he uses here. Something that is so large and so grand that it's an impossibility. There's no way in the world on God's green earth that that would ever happen. It's an impossibility. I wish this could happen, but you know, as soon as you say, I wish it, you know, deep down inside your heart, it's not going to happen. And when do we usually make wishes? At our birthdays when we blow out the candle and they say, make a wish. And you make a wish that, you know, even before you make it, it's an impossibility and it's never going to happen. I never got my pony for my birthday. And that's why I'm emotionally crushed all my life ever since. I remember wishing for a bike a bicycle when I was a young boy, and I never got my bicycle. 
because my parents couldn't afford it. But I always wished for one. But it never came true. That's what a wish is, something that, that even before we say it and speak it and believe it and think it, that we know it's so grandiose and so huge and so magnanimous that there's no way in the world that it's ever going to happen. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I wish, I know this is not ever going to happen, but I wish it anyway. And the reason he wishes it is because of his love for these people who are without Christ. If I could, I know I can't, but if I could, I would. Now, what is he saying? I know I can't, but if I could, I would. What is he saying? I would be accursed. That word means that he is being cursed. Amen. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, I would be willing to die on a cross like Jesus for their sin against God if that death could bring them salvation. I would be willing to die for their salvation. That's what he's saying. In essence, he can't die on a cross for their salvation because only one man could have done that, and his name is Jesus, because the Apostle Paul, unlike Jesus, is not perfect and would have to die for his own sins against God, not for someone else's. For only a perfect sacrifice can take upon himself sins that others have committed, and only Jesus could have done that. But the Apostle Paul said, if I could, I would. That is how selfless he is. And if you read the book of Acts, and I know Mike's life group is studying Acts, you'll find the Apostle Paul is willing to be so selfless that he is willing to be beaten and stoned and, and shipwrecked and all kinds of stuff without any thought for himself. He's willing even to die so that others might come to faith in Christ. And that's what he's saying. I would rather be cut off. In other words, have no salvation, no relation. If, if I could give up my salvation for someone else's salvation, I would. And I wonder if we have that kind of commitment. We are so selfish as a church, are we not? Well, I ain't seen the kind of songs I like today, so, you know, who you on that old music, dude? We are a church that had become so self-centered, or, or all they sung was hymns. You know, I'm not talking just to old people. I'm talking to young people. We're all the, the most self-centered, egotistical. We think that the world revolves around us. And, and you know what? The last person I lived with who thought themselves to be that way was a toddler. Toddlers believe the sun rises and the sun sets for them. If you don't know that, you need to know that, parents. And you're there for them and only for them. They, you bathe them, you, you wipe them, you clean them, you everything. It's all about them. And we have become so self-centered and so egotistical that, well, I don't mean to pick on the, the orchestra, but we only played two songs today. We need to learn some new hymns and some old hymns. And we need to make this less about us and more about others. And be willing to die to our own self-interests because that is the way of Jesus and that is the way of the Apostle Paul. Number four, notice his clarity in his burden. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. For the sake of is an interesting little phrase that is one 
word in the original language, it means that the Apostle Paul is clear about his place in his burden. As I've already mentioned, he is so selfless. It is all for their sake. What we do here on Sunday mornings, whether it's in the life group or in the the big group here or whatever we do in ministry, it's for the sake of others, not for our own sakes. I wonder how much we do is for our sakes rather than for their sake. But notice he says, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, he is clear about his purpose. What is his purpose? His brothers. Which brothers? His Israelite brothers. Those are the Israelites. That's the context. He's concerned about his fellow countrymen, but he's also concerned about his kinsmen. And that word kinsmen means there's a family tie. There's a family relationship. And as I read this, I thought, and I couldn't find anybody that agreed with me, but that's okay. I'm going to say it anyway, because I think I'm right some of the time. Not all the time, but some of the time. And I I, I wonder how many of the Apostle Paul's relatives were saved. You ever wondered that? How many of his family members, his kinsmen, his relatives, trusted Jesus as their Savior because of his testimony? Do you think he had some lost kinsmen in his family, like many of us do? Do you think that was a burden for him? And I think he saw his purpose as connected to them as kinsmen to take the gospel to his family. And I'm convinced that we need to be more concerned about the gospel in our family before we're concerned about the gospel in other people's family. But we are not to be that concerned about our family that we do it at the expense of others. Because we know that Jesus said that a prophet in his own hometown is not listened to very well. Why? Because they know you pretty well, don't they? They know where we've been, they know what we've said, they know what we've done, and so it's hard for us to witness to people who know us that well. But when they see authentic life change, not perfection, but authentic life change, maybe we can earn the right to witness to them. We should not only be concerned about our family members, our kinsmen, but we should be concerned about our countrymen. I wonder how concerned we are about our community around the church, our county here in Sedgwick County, our state, and yes, even our country, our nation, is in desperate need of King Jesus. He was clear about his place, and he was clear about his purpose. You know when things get confusing for me? When I get my place mixed up. When I somehow think that I'm the priority, and not others. And so do you. But when our priority is right and our place is right, our purpose will be right as we seek the salvation of not only our family members but also our countrymen. He was clear that the target of the gospel and why he was given and entrusted with this beautiful plan of salvation that can be only, it can be only delivered by someone who knows the one who is the content or the context of that passage. Then finally, look at the cause of his burden. The cause of his burden. We're going to have to skip back over to verse 3 in order to see the cause of his burden. And this is going to probably upset some of us, but in verse 3 in the first part, he said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Why is he so burdened for them? It's because of their sin. It's because of their sin. 
They are accursed. Galatians talks about being under the curse of sin. I mean, that's why God gave the law, and the law was intended to point out the fact that we are sinners. And then through Moses, he gave the sacrificial system by which we then came to the sacrifice and offer sacrifice for our sin. And that animal or that offering became a substitute for our sin and then absorbed our sin, and we were resolved from that sin, and we were then in the right relationship with God. But he's saying to them, the reason I am burdened, the reason I am so anguished is because of your sin. And I think one of the main reasons why we're not that anguished about sin of others or sin in our country or sin in our community is because we're not anguished about our own sinfulness. Because too often we allow sin into our living room through a thing called the television set. And we nod and we frown. We turn a deaf ear as if that doesn't conflict the righteousness of Christ. And because we somewhat are passive in our own lives about our own sin, then we are somewhat passive with the sin in our country and our community. God doesn't really care that much about that. Well, you know what? That sin damns them. It condemns them. They are under a curse, which takes us to the next passage, verse 4. Well, they're in, let's just look at verse 3. They are cursed. Galatians 6 talks about the curse of sin is death. And because of our sin, Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. And not only was he burdened because of their sin, but because of their special status. He talks about that special status in verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. These people had a special dispensation. They had a special status with God. All you have to do is, is go back to the Old Testament and read about the covenant that God had with Abraham and the people of God. And he had chosen Israel to be his people, and he had made some promises. And it's not that the promises or the word of God has failed. God has done all that he needs to do. He has done all that is necessary for them to be saved. It was they who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And yet these people thought, I got a special status with God. He's not going to condemn me. Me and God are like this. But they were in sin, weren't they? They had been given all this wonderful stuff. You look at the first part of verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. They had been given, notice, they had been given, uh, they had been adopted. They weren't, they were chosen by God and they were adopted. Uh, this glory talks about the glorifying of God. They, were, they had the covenants. They had the law. They were to worship in the temple and offer the sacrifices. God had given them promises, and they had been, also been given patriarchs and preachers and teachers, and yet they, 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 they just didn't listen. Can I tell you something that most of us know, but some of us need to hear again? There are no great-grandchildren or grandchildren in heaven. None of us are saved by special privilege because if we got what we deserved, it would not be salvation. We don't deserve anything that we have gotten from him. And because it is God who selects and it's God who calls, 
We are not here because we are special. And then lastly, notice their self-righteousness. Verse 5, the second part, and from their race, according to the flesh, as the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever, amen. A great doxology, some incredible truths. And I believe the Apostle Paul is calling Jesus God here. I do believe he's saying that. Some scholars would disagree with that, and some would agree with me. But I believe he's saying that Christ is God. He is divine. He is the Son of God. Therefore, he is equal to God, and he is overall blessed forever. Amen. But what he is describing here is their self-righteousness. They stepped over Jesus on their way to hell. They had all this advantage, and they had been given so much privilege and so many gifts that they did not, and they denied the grace that was offered through Jesus. Jesus came as the final sacrifice for their sin, the ultimate and the concluding sacrifice for their sin. And they, if they would simply turn to him, remember, God had done everything he needed to do in Jesus. He gave them the grace in the Messiah. He gave them Jesus. And they stepped over him on the way to hell. And they rejected him, they crucified him, and they laid his dead body in a tomb and sealed it and went away going, took care of that. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now the Apostle Paul was proclaiming the truth about this resurrected Jesus who came to offer salvation, not by one's righteousness, but by the ultimate righteousness of Jesus. Well, where do you get that? In chapter 10, we saw it last week, verse 2 and verse 4. For I bear them witness, he says, that they have a zeal for God. They had, a, they had this religious zeal. But not according to knowledge. They were just flat out like Forrest Gump's mama said, stupid is as stupid does. Or being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Righteousness is only found in Jesus, who was the ultimate and final perfect sacrifice. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the cause of his burden. Does our burden matter? I believe it does. An old story about a man who was walking on the shore. I love the ocean, don't you? And when he was walking on the shore in one of those wonderful walks, he came across a guy that was picking up starfish and he was throwing them one by one out into the ocean. And there were so many there. And he was picking one by one up and throwing them back in the ocean because he knew that if they stayed there, the sun would beat on them and they would die. And that man said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm picking up starfish and throwing them in the ocean so they can live. He said, well, so many, how can you make a difference? And he picked one of the starfish up and he said, it matters to this one. And he threw it out. He bent over and picked another one and said, it matters to this one. And he threw it out. It matters. And the reason it matters is because lost people without Jesus are dead. They are condemned to death. They are under the curse of the law. And they are not forgiven. They are not redeemed. And they will spend eternity in hell without Jesus. That's the cause of this burden. So how do we relate to this very quickly as we close? If you're a disciple of Jesus, these are the steps. 
we're going we're gonna to go through these very, very quickly. I'm going to go through these five very quickly. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. How, what is the next step for me as a disciple of Jesus? Number one, I need to examine my confession. I say I care. I say I love lost people. Really? You confess it, but is it real? Is it what it needs to be? Is it what it ought to be? Well, Pastor, you don't know what I do and how much I give and how much I serve, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can do all of that and not give a flip. Or maybe not care as much as you should. Examine what you confess. Because you see, a lost world wants to not just hear what we say, but they want to feel that we are speaking the truth. Number two, you need to elevate your concern. Okay, your concern is not what it needs to be, so elevate it. Are you, are you sorrowful? Is there anguish that keeps you up at night because of the lostness of your family, friends, and relatives, and coworkers, and people that you know who are without Jesus? And once you begin to elevate then that concern, we need to then execute the right kind of commitment because, you see, a commitment needs to be selfless. We don't come into life route. We don't come in here on Sunday mornings. We don't engage in the community. We don't do what we do for ourselves or for Emmanuel, but we do it for them. And I have a philosophy that the more you give away, the more impact you make for Jesus. A dying to ourselves so that others might live. Is that your, is that my, is that our commitment really? Or is most of our time centered and focused on ourselves, our agenda, our finances, our little things, our little world, our little ministries? Or is it really a commitment that is selfless? Then we need to establish clarity. Why are we here? What is my place? Where do I serve and how do I serve? And what is the purpose for which I serve? To be clear, to be focused, to be, have this focus that is exactly clear about where we fit, what our place is for the sake of others so that they might come to faith in Christ. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's why we're here. And then we express the right conviction because you see, Underlying it all, at the base of the foundation of it all, is a conviction that believes that without Jesus, they will not have life in this life, and they will not have life after this life in a place called heaven. Rather, they'll have it in a place called hell. And that should be the conviction that motivates us as disciples. One more slide. What's the next step if you're not a believer? Maybe you're a new believer today. You have awakened, God has called you, has awakened your spirit, and you now are ready to receive Christ as your Savior. You must respond to God's call. You can't just decide on your own you're going to do it. You have to hear him call you by name, tugging and pulling on your heart. Not persuaded by some eloquent speaker or some finagle, you know, little invitation. You know, you've been in those. We've, we've talked about those in staff meeting. I can do that. I can. Everybody bow your head, close your eyes. Don't, don't do that, but everybody bow your head, close your eyes. All right, now everybody's head, everybody, okay. If you, if you feel anything at all, raise your hand. I mean, anything, you know, a couple of hands go up. Right, you, you didn't raise your hand, so if anybody else, you raise your hand, a couple more hands. And I know some of you didn't raise your hand, but some of you wanted to raise your hand, so you raise your hand. So they raise your hand. You know, have you ever been to one of those? You ever been to one of those? 
Yeah? You've been one of those. Yeah? Now, if you didn't raise your hand, and you really want to raise your hand, go ahead and raise your hand right now. They're raising your hand. All right, now everybody's got their hand raised. Stand up. I just stand up. I know you don't want to stand up, so they'll stand up. Now, everybody look at me who's standing up. Now, everybody standing up, I want you to say this prayer. You ever heard them do that? And they tell them the prayer. Tell them what to say. And they recite that prayer. Now, if you prayed that prayer, come on down. Seen it? Yeah. Now, some of you out there didn't hear the prayer. You know, you heard what I said, and, and you said it in your heart, and you said it kind of to yourself. You didn't stand. But if you come on down, more will come. Now, if any of you love America, you come on down. If you love your mama, come on down. If you love apple pie, come on down. If you drive a Chevrolet, just sit in your seats. I drive a Ford. Come on down if you drive a Ford. If you drive a Dodge, there's no help for you. Sorry, Mike. Bob doesn't sell Dodges anymore, so we're in good shape, right, Bob? Is that a call? We can play that game all day long. And we can fill this aisle full of seats and feel good about ourselves. Oh, my, the Spirit moved. Really? Respond to the call. And some of us in here got saved like that. And we put our faith in a prayer rather than in a Savior. And we're as lost as the day is long. We need to recognize that we have a need that we cannot fulfill because we've all sinned. And because of that sin, we all are going to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we then repent. We turn from our, we turn from our old life. We turn. We, we no longer live this way anymore because, you see, there's a repentance. There's a way of living. And most prayers of salvation don't talk about turning from sin and turning to Jesus and living for him and walking and following in his footsteps. And as we do, we receive Jesus as not just the Savior, but he is the Lord, the commander, the CEO of our lives. We go where he says, we do what he says, we become like him in every way. And anything that doesn't do that is discarded so that we can look more like him every day. I wonder if that's your next step as a new believer today. You know, we as our custom, we give an invitation on Sunday mornings, and we'll invite you to respond in any way that the Spirit says to do so. We have a real convenient place over here called The Next Steps. And we invite you, as we stand and sing in just a few moments, to get up from where you are and make your way. We have some pastors and some people over there that would love to talk to you about any decision. There's a little card inside of your worship guide, Next Steps. We've made it real easy for you. And if you take a look at any one of those decisions, go ahead and fill that out and come speak to one of our pastors, one of our people that are here. They love Jesus, they love you, and they'd love to talk to you about that. As a church... We still have an opportunity for us to respond to what we're doing as a call to prayer. And I'm going to put some more of these out here. And some of you were not here last week. Some of you were. And I'm going to ask you to take one of these cards, fill out one card, and put it in the box in the back. Now, there's a box back there, and there's a box back here, and the box back there. There are four boxes because we have four exits. So just place it in the box, and uh, Angela will get it sometime before the end of the day. Let us hear from you. And as you come, pick up one of these, or maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray. This is the time, this is the opportunity for God to move in our church, in our lives, so that we might reflect his glory and fulfill our 